And then we have Heimdall, aka Connor Skeffik, who is the chief economist at Citadel. Three all of these projects are building on-chain. Um, I would suggest, so uh, one more thing. So I'm a bit, um, so my lungs are, are kind of hurting and I'm a bit sick. So I'm going to be on mute quite a bit and coughing my lungs out. Um, so I expect you guys to to have a chat and, and you know, uh, catch catch any silences and ask each other questions, uh, that'd be great. My experience is that on-chain games guys will just keep talking to each other indefinitely. So we're probably exactly. good. Probably good yeah, crowd of people. It's, it's on-chain, so it's 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 permanent, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, that, was, that was a bad joke. Um, good. <laughs> Let's start with some uh, some intros first. I think that makes sense. So maybe like a short background on yourself and then um, I, in the same breath, you can talk a bit about what you're building and then we can uh, we can go into um, why all of this is so exciting. David, you want to kick it off? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I, uh, I started making games in the early 90s, uh, electronic arts, and then uh, spent a long time there, then built lots of games companies across, you know, PlayStation, mobile. And a couple of years ago, I guess now, we, uh, we built a company around Web3 games and, and really sort of almost immediately started building on-chain games. And our first was a game based on uh, loot. Uh, an on-chain game that ran on Ethereum, and since then we've been building an MMO called Dawn Seekers. Cool. I can go next. Uh, my name is Ija. I am co-founding Curio, and um, previously I came from uh, mostly tech background, so backend and AI. And uh, me and my co-founder started looking into crypto in early 2021, and then got interested in fully on-chain games uh, later half of 2021 where we saw a bunch of uh, really early on-chain MMO games that were really successful, were fairly successful, and that put everything, including their logic, on-chain. And we thought that, okay, that's uh, the first step towards uh, allowing players to contribute further and, and to have a deeper experience than traditional games. And we, we kind of want to take that step further to really fully allow user-generated logic. And that's why we're here. Does it? I know. Uh, yeah, my name is Connor. I go by Heimdall. Uh, I'm the economist at Citadel Game. Uh, I got into the crypto space back in 2017, I think, when a lot of people did. There was that huge ICO boom. Everybody you know, got super interested in crypto at that time. Uh, kind of forgot about it for a couple of years. Uh, you know, I heard about NFTs, and specifically when I heard about NFTs and like on-chain gaming, like sort of around when Wolf Game was coming out, I got super interested that's when I was like, I see the potential of NFTs because until then I'd only heard about like PFP projects and stuff like that. It wasn't very interesting to me, but uh, I kind of deep dove in. I played every single on-chain game, every single Wolf game clone that there was, you know, definitely lost a couple bucks here and there, but it was really fun. And, you know, it was like a whole new 
every single day it was a whole new economic experience getting launched, you know, and, and then like Weimar Germany, you know, have inflation happening and dying within a couple of weeks. So this is such a super exciting space. Uh, but yeah, so here I am uh, a year later. Here's an observation. I, I'm I'm the only games industry guy, at least that come from the games industry. And I noticed this quite a lot about people building on-chain games. It's people that have come from other places that are sort of redefining what games are. I think that's that's interesting that it's usually new people to this world rather than people that have been making games before. Maybe that's what makes these games a bit different. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of background though like i did grow up playing a lot of video games and i also was a huge warcraft 3 modder so i didn't i didn't specifically develop games but i was very interested in game design uh, for a long time yeah why, why do you think that is uh david the fact that because I've, I've actually observed the same i would say that you know playment is by far the most experienced games team in the world building actually on-chain games and i'm just curious why do you think that's you know, out of the, you know, I don't know how many teams are, I think there's less than 50 building this. I would say there's like 40 of them have mostly like non-game native teams. Yeah, I, I think it's because uh, building an on-chain game, you have a very, a lot of constraints. And let's say that you're used to making PlayStation games or mobile games, whatever, you're the the design space is pretty rich. You know that you're going to be using Unity. You know that you're going to be using Maya. You know how to use all these things. You know how to create a great experience. And then if you're trying to build an on-chain game, you go, well, you can forget all that. You can't use any of those things. Those tools and that experience doesn't work. I mean, it does somewhat, some of those things, but it's a... You really have to take a hundred steps back if you're used to making PlayStation games and now you're trying to build a an on-chain game. And I think that's uh maybe that's unsettling if you take pride in your ability to make great games and now those skills that you've developed to have less value in the on-chain game world. So maybe something to do with that. It's tough. I mean it's it's really building from first principle first principle. Yeah. I, I wanted to add to that, which is like, um, yeah, on one hand, it's like on-chain game takes away some of the best tools that uh, traditional game studios uh, get to kind of making their great games. And at the same time, I think we're so early in the space that like it's it's quite hard actually to tell a traditional game team why like on-chain game is better for their game compared to what if it's built off-chain. Like the benefit is not extremely clear at the moment yet. And I think like the great on-chain games are only going to appear, uh, you know, from this year and, and beyond, um, you know, yeah, I, I, we're all building. And I'm sure we'll get to it later, but like, I, I think a challenge is that there aren't really any frame of reference for what an on-chain game can be yet. I mean, we're all just figuring that out. And so if you're a, a game maker and I'm saying, come and make a game like this, well, we don't, we don't have much to point to just yet. I mean, we're all building interesting projects there, but they're all sort of, borderline experiments that are starting to become games and i suppose if you're a traditional game maker and you're saying oh this is the kind of stuff that we're going to be building well it's still pretty primitive compared with a playstation xbox nintendo and pc games it's it's com primitive compared to pretty much all games we can be honest here david it's a safe yeah. space yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly so, Ija, I'd love to get your take on, like, 
you know, a few points or a few reasons why putting game logic on the blockchain, putting the game state on the blockchain excites you. What kinds of things does this open up? Why should anyone think about ever doing this? Yeah, uh, that's basically the key question of, of this space, I think. So I think for uh, for us or like how I think about it is uh, game logic, most of the games actually don't need to put their game their game logic on chain and one of the biggest benefits of doing so is actually you get a lot of uh, composable user generated logic that can be plugged in and uh, into the game which makes the game more desirable or, or playable for other players right so an example of this is um, let's say you want to uh, configure your game so that something happens when someone let's say transfers some in-game resource to another player right or like perhaps transfers that to a, a building to upgrade it uh something like that cannot happen in the like suppose you're um like suppose the smart contracts powering your game that it, it it cannot happen if your game engine is not open and is not like uh completely executed in a verifiable way right uh, if we think about the existing blockchain games today, like most of the play-to-earn games and uh, a lot other games that involve assets, um, the reason why they cannot really like take in player input, for example, whether it's players like adding new entities in the game or uh, defining the like custom relations or signing a pact with another player, like a custom alliance, these things are very difficult, if not impossible, to do if the, the game state is not on chain. Um, yeah. Could you could you perhaps then, I, th I think this is a perfect segue to just talk about Treaty, what you've built, what you allow for player interaction and, and programmability, because um, I think it's, it's really interesting and something we should definitely highlight. Yeah, so we actually launched Treaty, the first version this week. And um, yeah, uh, Hamdal has been a, a very... A strong player in in the game so that's yeah um yeah so we, we did a lot of thinking in kind of what we allow players to change in the game or to contribute in the game because there's always the question i'm sure david knows better than me on this like the, the, the question of game balance and um user generated logic and how these two kind of balances out how do you allow people to modify the game state and like the, the game rules in a way that doesn't affect the collective experience and, and the objective game, gameplay experience, right? So we there's a couple options. I think the first is directly allowing people to change game physics. You know, there's uh, a, quite, a, quite a bunch of people talking about, you know, having a very coherent uh, game physics for kind of the, these persistent worlds uh, that just run forever, right? Or, or run for a very long period of time. Um, that is a very, I think, uh, like a, a very good ideal to have perhaps for the end game. But I think at this stage, like if we look at all the Web2 games, right, there's almost no example of a game that it whose physics hasn't changed at all and which is uh, continually able to attract players, right, with its novelty and, and, and such. So that's very hard. Now, we could also let people kind of add um, custom blocks or building blocks to the game, right? Let's say, you know, they can add like a door that only opens to whitelisted players. And that's also, so th the problem with that is it, dis it, it directly impacts game balance. Um, you know, you can imagine someone uh, declaring a block that declares themselves vict victorious, right? And it, it's just like very, it gets very uh, difficult to, uh, to control these things. So 
the answer we came to is treaties, which is essentially people get to define the in-game relations. Um, for example, can you still hear me, by the way? We lost okay. you for a bit, but continue. Go yeah. So then, so then we settled on this idea of treaties, which is the ability to define uh, in regards to your kind of your rights to transfer your assets in the game and, and the rights to call certain functions such as move your own armies, right? Uh, using these rights to games, you can easily, you can transfer these to other players, uh, just like in the real world, like how, how real world treaties are made, right? So for example, like a simple example is non-aggression pact where it literally prevents two players from attacking each other for a certain period of time. And this, you know, in on-chain games, this can actually be enforced in a meaningful way compared to in a Web2 game where, where alliances are often very, very much non-binding, right? And you can imagine more and more examples where people use their in-game resources and, and rights to game functions um, and build on top of the existing game logic and make contracts, social contracts with, with each other, right, in the form of uh, supported by smart contract. So that's something that really excites us. And, you know, we, we've kind of already seen some examples of these, like there's some treaties uh, in the current game that are proposed by players. Um, so for example, a loan agreement. And yeah, we'll add more support for this, uh, for a much more vibrant system from, from this point on. Yeah, can I uh, can I jump in there? Because I I know that uh, when you say physics, what what you mean by that? I think because I think it's a term that's used with uh, other people building on chain games. Isn't physics in the way that we think the physics that exist in a in a PlayStation game where you throw something up and it comes down? Where you what you mean is physics as a set of rules that dictate how the game works. Is that correct? Is that a good yes. definition? So, so I think that uh, what you're talking about there, because we experienced this too, is you're saying, okay, what, which things in this world that we create, in this game that we create, can players modify and which things can't they? Physics being the set of rules that nobody gets to change. So we talk about a similar idea where we have the base layer of our game and that base layer is where the physics live and it's immutable. You can't, as a as somebody that's building in our world, you can't change those things. And then you have a set of things on top that can be modified. So I think, is it correct to say that in treaty, you have treaties that exist in the part where you can alter the way that the game works? Is that how you describe it or how you think about it? Yeah, I think that's, um, that's, that's a good way to think about it. Like, um, for example, a player cannot just generate gold out of thin air. But what they can do is to use their existing gold and kind of stake it in a pool that someone else created uh, that generates some kind of revenue. So yeah, that's exactly right. And I like how you kind of differentiated real-world physics from in-game physics. Like, it doesn't have to be some the same thing or even close. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that uh, when... Sorry, when... Um... Sometimes I think the hardest thing about building on chain games is it's it's we really struggle to articulate what it is that's uh, different about this compared with other games. And sometimes we get caught up in terminology and uh, we mean one thing and somebody else, somebody thinks we're talking about something different. So I think really like one of the biggest challenges right now is I think as, as on-chain game builders, we all understand why what we're doing is fundamentally different from games before it. But articulating that in a way that people understand is like the toughest thing. 
For sure. Yeah. yeah. You do. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've been playing the game probably for three days straight now, and I never really thought about it like that, that it's basically like fluid logic changes dictated by the players. That's pretty cool um, that you guys are doing that. Yeah. And, and, and EJ, I have a question for you. I mean, I've, I've, I've played a little bit, but I haven't created a treaty myself. Uh-huh. Th- th- those treaties between players do you have to write code to set up that treaty or is there some sort of UI in game or a set of rules? I mean, how easy is it for for players to make treaties? Yeah. So at this stage, we actually have the exist, like we, we have pre-built treaty templates that are either, you know, written by us or by players that are smart contracts, which people can fork and deploy and interact with in the game UI. So in terms of interaction, it's pretty straightforward, but at this stage, they, they can't not write any code and kind of, um, you know, deploy their own treaty. Now, in the future, I think there's a couple of things that are very low-hanging fruit. For example, if, you know, we have we can have treaty templates such as uh, non-aggression pact and a treaty with whitelist. And if you combine these two, you get a non-aggression pact that needs to be, you know, that joining needs to be whitelisted, right? And, and we'll also have better support for, like, people submitting smart contracts during the game. Um, but yeah, I think for the like for the next at least six months or so, like the the bulk of the logic creation will probably require writing code. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. So, in difference uh, with our game is that everything is upgradable in our contracts, but of course, we our game uh, uses a DAO. Uh, so basically. Players can vote. All the contracts are upgradable. So if we wanted to change the name of the token, even we could change that, um, which I think is it's pretty interesting. You know, because if we're building a game to last for a very long time, as things can last for a very long time on the Ethereum, you know, it's almost like you do want it to be fully upgradable because the things are going to evolve over time. The game logic, uh, you know, the the ability for uh, Like to correct the, the thing, yeah, yeah. The, like game gaming on the blockchain is going to evolve over time, so you want your game to be almost able to evolve over time, right? Instead of having to launch like a new game, in theory. So that's kind of like what we're thinking. Hmm. I'll, I'm going to answer Nico's question: why why I think building on chains uh, interesting and why we're doing it. And like I get asked a lot, so I need to have a good answer for this question. For us, it's it's. And, and by the way, there's no right answer. That's one of the things that makes it interesting. But for us, at least, there are two uh, two things that I think are interesting about building an on-chain game. Bear in mind that we're building an MMO. It's a sort of simple MMO, but it's an MMO insofar as it uh, you know has a bunch of characters exploring a map, upgrading, going on battles, etc. Now, the first thing I think is interesting about an on-chain game is that game world that we create, not the gameplay in it, but the game world itself, now runs on a blockchain. It runs on Ethereum, and it's never going to disappear. It's a game world that we create. We're the gods of this world. We might create it, but then we just let go. We cut the umbilical cord, and it lives forever. And there's something a bit magical about this world that lives forever that people can play games in, have experiences, and it's never going to disappear. Also, I mean, I take Heimdall's point that uh, you probably will take a while to make that world perfect, but at some point in time, we make it immutable. We we no longer have the ability to upgrade this world. And at that point, the world that we create lives forever 
this digital world lives forever and it cannot be altered for better and worse. And I think there's something pretty cool about a game world that lives forever and what started as ours as a company, we might have built it, but ultimately it becomes everybody's. Everybody lives in this world and it's owned by everybody, it's owned by nobody. Now that's the sort of that's the first thing, which I think is almost like a philosophical point, which is a cool democratic world that we all uh, live in. The second one is that um, is your point, Ija, about composability. So this point that if you're a builder, uh, then you can create any functionality that that bolts onto the experience that we create. You can create either augment the functionality of the game that we create by having, you know, uh, a trading building a trading post at this point on the map that does something slightly different, or creating a treasure hunt, or creating a casino. These are things that we don't build ourselves, but because the game logic and all the rules are sitting there on chain, then we allow people, we encourage people to add new functionality to the game. And I think that, that we've seen that to some degree with Roblox, obviously hugely successful, but that's quite limited in what you can do. You can only do the things that Roblox allow you to do, and you can only... Uh, you know, it's heavily curated, heavily taxed. And here we're saying, as long as it conforms to the physics of the world, to, to use your word, Ija, then it's going to work. And whether I like it or not, you, you're free to deploy it. It's completely permissionless. And if people like it enough to spend money on, then the money goes to you. It doesn't go to us as the, you know, the gods of the world. So I think those are the two main things that I'm excited about. It's a game world that lives forever and is, is immutable. And the second thing is, it's a game world where people can either augment the game experience that we create or com have completely different game experiences that run side by side of whatever we create there. And I don't think we've ever seen that in a game before. So it's super primitive right now. We really, you know, it's very, very difficult to build these games. And it, what, you know, I describe an MMO, but it looks a lot different from Zelda, let's say, you know, because there are tons of constraints. But we can still see it working, even at this sort of embryonic stage. And I can see how, you know, where we can go from here. So to me, it's a really interesting new category of the games industry that's just starting. I'm Dolly, you want to take this chance and tell us a bit more about Citadel? Because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of starting to see, like, slightly different approaches in, in the way permissionless building works and exactly what you're allowing builders to adjust within your game world. Um, but for that, I'd, I'd love to get your, um, your quick intro on Citadel. Yeah. So, uh, Citadel is a, you know, a fully decentralized pixel spaceship MMO on a Ethereum blockchain. You know, it's a fully on chain game state and logic, fully upgradable contracts, all managed by the DAO after launch. Uh, after launch, the team becomes part of the community. Uh, so we're really uh, building for the long term here. We, we're, we've been building in public for a year now, like um, keeping the community like involved, taking all their feedback, all their ideas, integrating them as much as we can into the project. Because we really want to create the sense that they, the community is the stewards of this, this project into the future. And it, it's you know, fully malleable, fully adjustable can grow with the times. Uh, not only that, it's transparent, it's accountable, it, it gives the players agency to create. Uh, of course, it's not per permissionless, you need to make proposals, but as long as it's a good idea and as long as the code is good and been audited and all these things and it's good for the economy, I'm sure people will vote for it. So 
it's 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 a way and people can technically build permissionlessly also because they can make things with the assets that are outside of the game that could be an off-chain mini game or you know their own on-chain game that use the same assets or anything any of the above but um so that's essentially what we're trying to do is is a fully decentralized kind of game modding community and in the kind of uh, sort of like the Warcraft 3 modding community or, you know, DayZ modding community or any of these modding communities that were super successful that had all these games spawn off of an original base layer game or minimum viable game. So, yeah, that's basically what we're doing. So to pitch it back to you, the founding team essentially builds this world, which is a, a let's say, a simple game loop with assets within economy. And the moment you launch it, it becomes public owned by the DAO and you as a core founding team, if you want to do some additions, you would have to make a proposal, send it to the DAO and only if the DAO approves or majority or whatever, how, how you do it, um, you, the code and, and the functionality is actually added to your game. Exactly. Yeah. So it has to be approved majority vote, uh, by the community. Um, yeah. Pretty much everything has to go through the community. They have yep. full power. So we, we retain like a minor veto power, but that's actually owned by the community also so they can remove it. And we pre-wrote the proposal for them to remove it. So we have very minimal uh, power actually over the community. That's pretty, <laughs> I think, idealistic. But, you yeah. know, I think that's that's Web3, right? We're, we're idealistic here. <laughs> I, it reminded I, I, we built a game in the Lootverse uh, at the beginning of last year, and one of the things I didn't understand how it would work is if you allow anything, if anybody can build anything for the Lootverse. So my question, I, I wonder, well, how do you decide what is in the Lootverse when anybody can make anything? And what I learned from that was that the projects which are exploitative or bad or you know, you know people didn't like, then they just sort of withered and died and nobody talked about them and then they weren't part of the experience. And and I think that in a way I imagine something similar happens here where there's bits that people build. You know, How do you govern this permissionless world? What I, what I think happens, at least in our game, is um, people, sure, can build whatever they want and they can sort of load up the experiences that the people have created. If they like them, then they'll play them. Maybe they'll spend money on them. If they don't, then they'll just get ignored. And so I think that what the game becomes is what the community decides that the game is. And as I say, that's that I guess was one of my key learnings from Loot. I'm surprised at how well that worked. Nobody was in any debate what was part of the Lootverse or what wasn't. Nobody even talked about it. So I think maybe that's how it works with permissionless building in on-chain games. Yeah, well, I echo that. I think the weight of community is like definitely so much higher um, for this space compared to the past. Like, um, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's that part's pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and I'm also, I think this is one of the fundamental things that's different about it. And, and bear in mind, so we come from a world where we would release a game and then live operate a game. And, and by that, I mean, we would come out with new levels and we'd have Halloween event and Easter event and Christmas event. And, you know, we keep the game fresh, but in a relatively predictable 
way. Here, and with a relatively contained team, like, you know, they have 10 people making a, let's say, a mobile game that you're live operating. Here, when you give the the keys to everybody, then you're saying build whatever you want and as many people as you want can build and you can build whatever you want provided it conforms to the rules, the physics of the game. And I can't, I genuinely have no idea which what way this game is going to be, where, where the gameplay is going to go, what the community is going to like. Are they going to like the parts that we create or would they... Or do they prefer the bits that other people in the community have has, has created? And to Heimdall's point, there's like parity. Just, just like in Citadel, there's parity. So we're builders alongside the community builders. There's nothing, there's no sort of elevated status for us as the people that originally created the world. No, we're builders alongside everybody else. And I like that sort of democracy. If it sucks, people won't play it. If, they, if it's cool, then they will. And so this becomes almost like self-optimizing gameplay. There are lots of people building lots of stuff. The things that aren't any good, people, whether it's from us or others, won't get played and won't have any money spent on it. Yeah, and I, I think to echo your point, uh, the players know what's good, right? They know what's fun. Just like in Warcraft 3, I don't, I don't know. I never played the original game. I only played the mods because that's what was fun. The original game was kind of boring to me. So... I think that you're you're totally on on point that the players will know what's good and those games will survive and grow, you know. David, could you elaborate um on how you practically see that work? So, you have your game. It's let's say it's a browser-based game, you load it in, load into it in the browser and then there are parts of the game that are good, parts of the game that are bad, parts of the game that are created by you, parts of the game that are created by others. Like how practically does that work and how can I choose which one I want to play or interact with? Yeah, that's a that's a good question that truthfully we were asking ourselves up until a few months ago. So I think that if you build an on-chain game, that you know, build pitch this on-chain game, and because it's on-chain, then people can write code that connects with our game, as as I've just been describing. But how in practice? Like how does that really work? And if you just you know, right. How do I, as a builder, now have things that show up in game? And that's not, I don't think you get that for free. I think you have to accommodate it as the people that build the original experience. You have to plan for that. So, specifically, I'll try and paint a picture. Um, you know, our game is an MMO, it's a, a, a so if you can picture a landscape with buildings in it and characters moving from building to building and you know sort of like a 30,000 feet view of of this game world and uh as a player what i can do is is build a building in the world and attach a smart contract to it in fact attach a web page that uh links to a smart contract so let's imagine that i click on this building on the map up pops a window like an overlay and in that is a web page with a bunch of buttons in it let's imagine it's the casino example and then uh and it says do you want to bet do you, do you want to spend 10 gold to enter the casino and then if i press yes then it shows me an interface moves to the next web page which is input boxes for me to stake my uh, to gamble my wood or iron that exists in the game but these are connected to smart contracts that affect the the game state the game logic and the game state in in the world so it gives players an interface 
And it's deliberately pretty flexible. We're saying that's a web page. You could just say hello world. It could be whatever you want. And uh, but that's that's how that works in practice. And then to your other point, which is well, how do I as a player decide you know which parts of the that other people have built show up in the game? Otherwise, it looks just like a a thousand different things going on at once. And some of those things are going to be good. Some of them are bad. So in practice, we have a, there's a central, well, it's not centralized. It's a decentralized list of things that exist in the world. And you sort of, you, you tick them as you, as you want to see them. So if you hear as a player that, uh, hey, someone's built a casino, then I can see on the list, sure enough, there's a casino. And now any time anybody's placed a casino, then that becomes available for me as a player to use. And uh, it still exists for all players. It's just like uh, the door is unmarked, to try and use a sort of map analogy, you can uh, to, to really get the functionality. Maybe when I click on that building, it says, hey, if you want to see what's inside, then you need to, there's a check, bo- check mark to, to add in the plugin that has a casino. So all of these things exist in the world. And by default, we might sh- show a set of things, but then it's up to the player to decide what other functions they want to see. And that means that players can have different visualizations of what's going on. They can decide what parts they want to take part in. Do people need a... Yeah, yeah go ahead. just a question on, like, do people uh, need to write the... Sm- so the smart contracts are, like, people wrote them, right, and then uploaded to the website and then kind of linked to the whatever object in the game correct yeah so i think that we're still at a point that's what i mean it's why i asked you the question Egypt, because it's something that we talk about and is that a you know is there a no code or is there a low code option for people that want to build but don't know solidity because obviously that's a uh you know that limits the amount of people that can contribute as builders um and i think the and often people talk about um, uh, sorry, Roblox is an example where you have lots of builders. That isn't a no-code solution either. You need to you know need to know Lua. You still need to know a programming language. But I still yeah. think that that we as on-chain game makers, if we really want to encourage the builders, if we really want to encourage this idea that people can expand the functionality of the game, then we really need to try and make it as easy as possible for people to get something. It's simple in game. So today, that's um, in, in practice, that's us with a bunch of sample smart contracts to show how to do things. Uh, but in time, what I'd like to try and do is create tooling that allows people to build content without writing a line of code. But I don't. I don't think we start there. But I think that if we really want to get uh, offer building to a wider set of people, then we can't demand that people need to program i don't think but as i said roblox has had huge success and that requires programming if you're a builder so don't know exactly how that important it is but uh, but i but i certainly think trying to accommodate builders in a way that they can easily it's just i want something immediately rewarding that builders can do even if it's something pretty simple i i think in terms of our community because like I think, yes, solidity is a huge uh, barrier for most people to contribute. But I think uh, in terms of our, I'm, I think we're hoping for people to kind of gather together like a normal community. So like somebody might not know how to build a house in a community, but that 
you know, or like say the architect has a vision for the idea of a house, but doesn't know how to build it. And then he gets the guy who can build the house. Right. And then they get together and they're like, wow, we built this thing together. This is amazing. And you know, it makes the whole community better. Uh, right. It adds value. For sure. Uh, so yeah. maybe, maybe people will get together in pods, you know, artists gets together with Solidity developer and, you know, another guy who has the ideas and, uh, this may even happen via somebody making a proposal that's relatively well-written. It doesn't have the code attached to it, but it does get passed. And somebody who is a Solidity developer in the community sees that and says, I want to build that, you know, and then they get together. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for sort of a natural de development cycle that's similar to real life, you know, once you build this sort of structure. Yeah, I wonder whether or not... Let's say that you have to write code right now in order to add functionality to an on-chain game. Of course, somebody could create a tool that spits out that code. So it's not, you know, you might have a user interface. User interface. It's a tool that's an easy user interface that spits out Solidity code that does a thing. So, so now in the community, there's a, there's a tool that makes it more approachable for, for builders that doesn't necessarily come from us. So I don't know how important that is yet. Maybe something that's created by the community. I was going to yeah. say chat, chat GPT. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's another like um, kind of tangential angle to looking at on-chain games, which is like uh, it's kind of an, some people think it's an extension of MEV, uh, where you know it's it's another scenario where pe a lot of people most like people code to gain certain advantage in a in a game-like fashion, um, and and certainly there's some truth to it because like on-chain games, if built actually openly and permissionlessly, could integrate the the many DeFi primitives that are already uh, built. And you know, if uh, if if the game developer takes a deep tokenization approach, for example, tokenizing all of the uh, in-game assets as like ERC twenties or eleven fifty fives, then it can actually leverage these existing DeFi pro uh, uh, primitives. Um, and I think there's like I, I'm like this is something that we discuss as well a, a lot about, which is kind of who are we building. Uh, for right, is it for these like super uh, crypto native technical like but uh, small but very active group of you know degens like uh, very hardcore people or you know more so for like the the broader audience who probably don't know how to code don't know solidity uh, may not even have a wallet uh, at the moment and or is it something in the middle right and I think there's like different choices that needs to be. Uh, like different actions that need to be taken for for each group um, on this. Well, and like it's not yeah. it's not um, it depends when as well, right? So I think if you if you told me that in three years' time the only people playing an on-chain game was a DGen, then I think as a group of on-chain game makers we failed. But like, but this year I think it's okay to start with people that understand what we're doing and and work. Yeah, out some of the UX kinks and the UI kinks and a bunch of other things. So, you know, I think over time it becomes more approachable to people that are less crypto native. Yeah, and I think one thing that could be very interesting is, um, I, I like like it seems like all of us are thinking about you know composability and user generated logic in a way. And something that could be like very important in my opinion is kind of a. Almost like a app store pre-scan uh, security feature, 
uh, for kind of user-generated logical pieces or smart contracts. Because if you truly build, uh, like expose your game as a giant API to people, uh, you you cannot avoid some malicious content, right? That uh, kind of hurts other players in an unfair way. So, but then you also don't want to censor any content uh, manually, right? So kind of what's the good balance there? How do you perhaps use like a, a automatic fuzzer to, uh, to to test like what the worst thing could happen with each piece of user-generated content? Um, that's something that is really interesting to to us. Yeah, and you see, but but then, and this is again something that we talk about in our team as well, you've just, as, if I understand what you're describing, you've just introduced a point of centralization. So if somebody is curating the content and checking for penises and swastikas, then, you know, which might be a very legitimate thing to be checking for, but now the game isn't decentralized. Now there's a, there's somebody that's checking for that content and deciding, yes, you can go and you can't. It's no longer permissionless. I think what, it's, what if it... I what if it's a down managing that? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, it could be yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could be like um one part it could be an automated strategy, the other it could be opened to the community to control, like what's the extent. So yeah. So while I was on mute scuffing here by my desk, a few observations I made and and a few like interesting things I, I'd love to get your thoughts on. One Hearing you guys talk about the design space that you open up when you allow for user-generated logic versus the permissionlessness, permissionlessness, it sounds like giving people or, or builders or your community um, unlimited user-generated logic and unlimited power in even changing the physics with full permissionlessness it's probably a bad idea because then we get in the situation that we just talked about where, you know, they can put in the penises and the swastikas and the frauds contracts and seal all your NFTs, right? Um, and it's, if you, for example, look at Citadel, Citadel is a game that essentially allows for unlimited user-generated logic, but it is permission because the DAO needs to agree on what you do. And so you you get this graph of of one angle, you have the um, the level of, complexity that your logic can an impact that your logic can have on the game state and then on the other you have the amount of like the, the permissionlessness and so as as you increase in complexity and you open up the design space of the logic that users can do you seem to decrease in permissionlessness is that is that a fair is, is that fair do you guys agree with that that's Oh, uh, yeah, I think generally, generally it's true. Um, but I, I don't think as game developers, we necessarily have to kind of, um, like, it, I, I don't know if it's like the questions to ask, because I think ultimately players care about the, the game experience. And uh, for example, even when players are creating, right, it's a lot of, a lot of times about kind of how many dimensions can I create uh, in, in this game, for example, can I, you know, play with the the assets inside the game? Can I deal with like my delegations to to certain rights, right? Uh, as opposed to like, oh, like how many, but like how decentralized is this game? Like, I I think very few players actually ask that exact question, and I think there's many ways to define like permissionlessness, and and you know, I, I sometimes just like to point out that like the way we think about permissionlessness is not quite 
the same as uh, a lot of players. And oftentimes they want additional functionality, additional dimensions in a way that doesn't affect uh, their experience nor their you know, mm -hmm. asset security and freedom. I think that's the most important. I agree. Uh, I, I guess because yeah. you kind of, I think we're th saying, this, saying the same thing um, because, for example, what you're building is essentially the treaties in your game are fully permissionless, but they are also limited in scope and what they can touch, right? They essentially only govern social interactions and are always exactly. opt-in, right? Um, exactly. And so I guess, like, I, by the way, I fully agree that players in the end don't care about the, the permissionlessness or not of what builders are allowed to build on, on top of um, the game world that exists. I guess what I what they do care about is balance and having a fun game. And if you allow everyone to change the world in any way, you'll get these uh, the mine, these Minecraft public servers that essentially is like lava everywhere and then just a bunch of penises built, right? Um, so, yeah. Um, I, we, we talk about it in a bit of a, a different way, which is um, we talk about the idea of a base layer where and a builder layer. So there's a base layer that contains the world physics. And by that, I mean it might be something like the speed at which a character can move from the east to, to the west of the map. And maybe that's a set number or maybe it's affected by how much inventory they're carrying. So, you know, the more they carry, the slower they go. Or, and now what combat looks like, that probably also, you know, is about hit points and what weapon you have and what armor, and probably taking resources out the map. You don't want a situation where somebody could just build something that immediately took all the gold out the map. That's not desirable. That would cause immediate imbalance. So we talk about those things in the base layer as being immutable. That's the world physics that nobody gets to change including us as builders once we set that in that's it set in stone our the game experiences that we create have to follow the same sort of rules as anybody else but then so there's a this base layer and then on top of that is the builder layer and within that you can you can call on the the things in the base layer but they're sort of read only they're not you, you can't write to them you can't change them now i think we have a lot of debates here on the team talking about where is where where's the line between those two layers how much stuff do you let people mess with that you know the 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 higher you put that bar you just if you just have a very thin builder layer on top then the scope of what you can do as a builder is probably limited too low and it just becomes a sandbox full of lava and penises to use your example so uh, i think um i, I think figuring out what parts you get uh, builders are allowed to affect is a diff difficult thing to answer and probably you won't get right straight away but that's like a fundamental question for anybody building an on-chain game i think yeah a question about that is like how do you let's say uh, do you ever run into or do you think um, like you know people building on-chain games will run into situations where initially you set the the bar very high or the uh, kind of like limited uh, like space or dimensions for people to build, and then you want to kind of lower that, right? Uh, to so so to open up more of the base layer, in your words, um, to to people's like uh, creativity, right? Like, what do you think the right process for for that should be like, and like, or how do you think about it? A good question. I think first of all, I'd say we won't get it right the first, second, third, fourth, or fifth time. We might get it right on the sixth time, you know. Um, so I think that. 
You know, we're thinking in seasons. Ultimately, we want this game world that's uh, immutable and immortal that just lives forever. But the reality is we're probably going to get it wrong a few times and figuring out where to draw the line, what things are immutable, which things are that you can affect is probably going to take some um, some working out. And I think that if you're doing it with the right intentions and the communities behind you, then they're pleased that you're calling time on that version of the world and creating another season. So I don't think I have a good answer other than we'll build it with, you know, with best guess, get it wrong a few times until we're happy with it. And uh, that's the one that lives forever. But, but I, you know, nobody's really done it before. So it's a, it's a tough question. Actually, um, I want to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Amino. Uh, I want to ask you, Gia. I, so I didn't read too too deeply on your guys' documentation. I, I was wondering, what is is Treaty running on zk's or and are you guys going to be launching on like your own side chain or L two or because I'm curious how what the back end of this is because it's been really fun so far. Super accessible too, by the way. Uh, you were talking about that earlier. I feel like anybody could come into this, log in, and play it. So. Yeah, um, yeah. Thanks for I guess enjoying the game. Um, yeah, so so yeah. I guess this is a good segue into like talking about like the infra, which is I think you know the elephant in the room, like one of the biggest challenges for on-chain games. Um, yeah, so we actually yeah we currently build on our own rollup, uh, which can settle to any EVM chain really. Uh, currently, we're running a game that has no financial value, so we are we're, we're not really settling anywhere. But uh, once we do, we'll, we'll we'll choose like L2. The reason we're not directly building on an L1 or even like a decentralized L2 at the moment is because it, it's purely because of kind of gas limitations and contract size limitations, right? There, it's just um, like like yeah, Hemdal can attest like the game right now, even on a custom rollup, is not super fast, um, and you can imagine like all of the uh, all of the hassle building on. Um, like an, a decentralized L2, and I think we also want to reimburse the gas for for players to make sure that the experience is optimal. And it's it's much harder to do that on I think like uh, a, a decentralized L2. Um, yeah, but I think um, I mean like I'm curious about like David's uh, your you guys' approach with uh, I think you're building on Polygon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. curious how um, that has been as well. Yeah, I mean, we were on StarkNet, and I think that's that when we chose that because it was the most mature layer two, I, I think. But but we moved off that because at, at that time it didn't feel ready to ship a game. Well, it wasn't ready to ship a game. And so we moved to Polygon Proof of Stake. Uh, and, and I don't much like side chains, but 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 ultimately it's a mature chain, chain that we know that we can ship a game on. So, you know, and, and it's on a public. Uh, um, Public chain, so we we haven't run into too many issues. We've, like all of us, I think, you build a game within the constraints of of building on blockchain, right? So we haven't built a game that has two hundred actions per minute. That, that that's not going to work. So we know that a, a transaction time on Polygon is about ten seconds, and so you build a game where. It's not a problem that the the things that you put in motion take 10 seconds to be verified. And we sort of, 
we sort of disguise that by setting off a character. Let's say that I want that character go to go from the east to the west on the map. Then, e- even though it might take ten seconds for for it to be verified that it's you know starting that journey, obviously the character starts moving right away. If for some reason that transaction fails, then within the user interface we'll sort of reset it and rewind a bit. Mm. But um, you know, it's like we found that it, yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, yeah. so I think um, so sometimes we run into instances and, you know, we could get a bit too technical on this call, but but sometimes we run into instances where the computation required to, to for a particular piece of gameplay is too, is not efficient for a blockchain to run, which is where we use uh, ZK proofs to move some of that computation away from the blockchain and onto the player's computer, which then gets built into a proof and verified on chain. That verifying on chain is a lot cheaper for processor intensive things than, than actually trying to do the processing on chain itself. So that's, you know, that for us, that's expanded the design space. We can do more complicated things by using that technique. Yeah, I uh, wanted to add a bit, which is um, I think a lot of our current constraints um, with like building with Solidity with EVM is just the EVM itself, right? Like it's purely, it's like um, completely single threaded, meaning you cannot parallelize and you uh, oftentimes the performance just like does not match the, the modern kind of distributed compute system. So I think the next step for on-chain game teams, like whoever can find a way to either like significantly optimize the EVM so that it, it supports uh, kind of much better uh, and, and like m- much higher compute gameplay, um, uh, especially for games like what we're building, like a 4X strategy where it's fairly high actions per minute. I think um, that that's like a pretty big challenge. And yeah, like we're, we're spending a lot of uh, engineering time on that as well. Well, and maybe the answer is not EVM, right? So, you know, right, EVM, that's possible say, too. If if the Stark where people were on this call, then they'd be pointing out the reason why they're on Stark Starknet is because it solves some of the problems that are inherent in EVM. So, you know, I don't even think that's uh, been fully worked out yet. What what is the right um, environment for for running these kind of games? I think the jury's out on that still. Everybody's experimenting. I don't know what Heimdall. What, what is Citadel on? So uh, all the assets are like native L1 Ethereum, but then we bridged them to L2 Polygon uh, for the game state mm-hmm. and gameplay. Um, and we actually take the opportunity there with the bridge. So when you bridge your NFT ship to the game, you are minted a soulbound governance token. So only the people that are in the game are uh, able to vote and you know use governance powers. Um, yeah. Do people trade on Polygon or e- Ethereum? So um, at launch, you'll want to you'll have to bridge out to go trade and, and sell on a secondary. Um, Got it. But we're we're intending to have like on because we have a fully on chain map and the map is relatively large. It's about twenty four hours across on average. Uh, we're gonna have like on chain like outpost marketplaces. So like you assets will only be available in that marketplace if you list it there. So like if you go to one space station, they'll have different assets for sale than another space station. Uh, eventually when we have items and stuff like that, that'll have, you know, different items and then that'll create like in-game arbitrage, you know, so some areas might be more dangerous than others. So players will be like bringing, you know, the items to a different marketplace and stuff like that. I think that it gives a lot, a lot more life to the game, you know, uh, having stuff like that. So, yeah. 
One of the things that uh, Nico and I have certainly spoken about in the past is um, this idea that you can, as a player, and in fact it came out because of a podcast I heard with Hilmar, he was ta- from um, EVE Online, talking about the fact that a lot of the gameplay existed, was that, that exists in the game is where players want to do a certain thing, and so they, uh, in sort of social groups, and... Uh, then subsequently the team that are building EVE Online build that stuff into the game so that the players can can do the things they, they want. Here I think something's different where, where if you're building an on-chain game, then that you can build those structures yourself. So if you decide that, hey, you're a new player, good news, I'm going to help you quickly get to level 10, but you need to give me 10 gold, then you can build that into a smart contract. And now if you want to join that guild, then those are the rules of the guild, that's how it works. And you don't have to worry about the game maker kind of catching up with what the community wants to do. So I'm interested in, it's not just about game functionality, but it could be about social organization. And it could be about, hey, I'm going to you, Heimdall, you were talking about uh, you know output or trading posts within your game that had local AMMs, if I understood correctly. So I could easily imagine that a guild could write dashboards that track the prices of different things in different places and use that piece of functionality as a, an advantage within their guild. So I, I think that we tend to focus on functionality that's all about uh, the, allowing the game to do something different, but I think functionality could be all sorts of things in an on-chain game. Yeah, I think totally. And, and these guilds could look something like sub-DAOs, right? And and they could maybe make a proposal to the main DAO that say, we want to create a space station, let's say, at, at this coordinate. And we're willing to pay this to the DAO for the right to own this space station. Uh, and, you know, we'll get to set the taxes for the AMMs or whatever exists there. You know, so there's all kinds of different things that can happen once you have like an on-chain base layer like map that people can build on top of and do all these different kinds of things. So it's it's really exciting. <laughs> I have no idea what's going to be built. I think, and and that's what makes it what makes it interesting, right? It's uh, I don't know what our game looks like in a year's time, and if if everything's gone right, we've developed ten percent of it. You know, 90% of it is what the community's built. Sure, we'll build some gameplay, some, you know, game experience to get the party started. But I want a game where we're the minority. We, we've, we've just created a part that people like or don't like, but there's lots of other things to do in, in the game as well. Yes. So, um, it's a shame we're running out of time here. I um I felt like I wanted to get your thoughts on on incentivization of builders as well because uh, I feel there's different strategies here. Um, we can do a part two. I mean, that's yeah. a, you know that's an hour right there, right? It's a that is. trustless that is. incentivization of builders yes. in an on-chain game. Holy cow! We'll make we'll make it happen. We'll have to make <laughs> it happen by then. We'll have hopefully have some updates from uh, from the three of you. And um, yeah, so Ija. I'm Baller Scotts and David. Thank you so much for joining. Um, I actually like I came to a bunch of new conclusions, so um, it's really cool. Yeah, honestly, like I've been I've been thinking about this for a while, and and, and this was great. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for joining. And listener, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed and learned as much as I did. Um, if you liked it, let us know. If you want a part two, let us know. If you don't want to see these guys again, 
Let us know as well. <laughs> if I talk too much about on-chain games, you can also let me know. Um, I'll be happy to know that. Um, but yeah, um, it was good. And uh, we look forward to uh, speaking to you in the next episode. Ciao.